Okay, so um, we are nearing the end of our series on the um, uh, gospel account uh, written by John. And we are in, we're going to start from John chapter 18, uh, verse 38. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn it to John chapter 13, and we're going to start from verse 38. Um, but don't worry, the, the words will be on the screen for you to follow. So Easter is almost upon us. And what are your highlights of Easter? Perhaps you have particular memories of Easter that you think about this time of year. Maybe it's decorating eggs, and you used to do that. You used to kind of decorate some eggs. Maybe you used to kind of roll them down a hill with your uh, brothers and sisters or with your mum and dad. I, I'm not sure what that was about. Um, maybe, maybe it's just eating lots of chocolate eggs this time of year. And uh, perhaps you're like, oh, you know, I'm just, just going to gorge myself on as much chocolate as possible. And perhaps it, you, you have to find yourself hiding it from someone else in the family. For, for us, it wasn't my brother necessarily I had to hide my chocolate from. It was from my mum. Do we have any secret mum chocolate eaters here who would eat their children's chocolates? Yeah. Mum, get off my chocolate. It's mine. I've only got 15 eggs. So, you know, maybe it's that. Maybe it's like the two weeks holiday you get for school. Maybe it's four-day weekend. Perhaps you have to work over the Easter holidays. Perhaps you're from another nation and... uh, you're not really quite kind of sure what Easter was all about or is about. And you're kind of thinking, well, you know, when I lived in this nation, uh, when when you lived in your home nation, Easter, you kind of knew Easter was about a a bunny rabbit and a man, and one of them delivered chocolate and one of them died for some reason, but you're not sure which way round it goes. Um, But there's some meaning in there, and it just kind of seemed like some distant celebration that someone celebrated overseas. But interestingly, you might be from a nation where actually you were taught that Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross, that it was someone else or something else happened that meant that Jesus wasn't hung on a cross to die. And do you know what? That, that interestingly, is at odds with what every, uh, almost every ancient historian would say um, about Jesus' life. They would all say, no, no, it's, 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 a, it's like one of the most reliable, reliably attested facts of the ancient world that this, this man Jesus was hung on a cross. And it's a pretty kind of gruesome way to die. We know that from, from historical accounts. It was a kind of slow, painful way um, to be killed, and it was really was reserved for the worst of society. And uh, in the end, the Romans outlawed it because it was so gruesome. And w- that's what we're talking about this morning. So we've brought along this cross so we can kind of have a visual representation of it. But it really was a most horrid way to be killed. But, but the, the gospel writers of it, that we've we find writing about Jesus' life, don't necessarily, they're not necessarily writing to prove that it happened, but they're more interested in telling us why it happened. 
Because for Christians, it's become a symbol of hope. And today, we're going to be looking at what John is telling us about what was going on at the events of Jesus' crucifixion. He's saying, no, no, it's a re- it, everyone would have known, no, this happened. But John wants us to know, I want to tell you why this happened. And this kind of became clear to me as a, a kind of young teenager uh, around Easter time, that Jesus was crucified wasn't a question for me. But at that time, I realised why Jesus was crucified for me. And it changed my life. So last week, Sarush talked about the trial that Jesus went through. The Jewish leaders, they'd decided that Jesus had to die. But they couldn't execute him. So they needed Pilate, who was kind of like the Roman guy in charge of the area of Judea that they lived in. And he wasn't that keen, especially after talking to Jesus. Actually, he was trying to do the very opposite. He was trying to keep him alive. So let's look at this, this account that we have here. And we're going to kind of skip through some different um, uh, excerpts from the end of 18 and into chapter 19. With this, he, that's Pilate, went out again to the Jews gathered and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But what is your custom? But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. He's talking about Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, the king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And so he, Pilate takes Jesus back into the palace and you know he's trying desperately not for Jesus to be crucified. Um, and he talks with Jesus and then we pick it up again at verse 12. From then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a friend, uh, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, with him two others, one on the, each side and Jesus in the middle. And going down to verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had been now finished, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Where, he'd received the dri- where, received, where he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, so three things this morning that relate to the why of Jesus' crucifixion. Firstly, the king who is rejected. See, the kingdom of God, where God's rule and God's reign is, it's a theme of Jesus through the gospel accounts of his life. And Jesus would say, as you encounter me, as you meet me, you're encountering the kingdom of God. You're encountering God's kingdom. But interestingly, he doesn't actually talk about the kingdom loads in John's gospel. He talks a little bit. He talked to Nicodemus uh, uh, when he said, um, uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And uh, when he entered into Jerusalem, the people were shouting out, it's the king of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel. But actually, in the moments of his death, John really wants to highlight to us his kingship. Why? Well, Jesus was going to become king in a very different way than what they would expect. Not, not by kind of overthrowing the Roman authorities, not by kind of setting up a, a kind of an earthly base from where to kind of run his kingdom. A bit like that song we sang this morning, you didn't you didn't consider an earthly crown. And at this moment, Jesus looks anything but a king. He's being mocked by the soldiers. They're dressing him up. And they're saying, hail the king. And they're slapping him and mocking him. And Pilate presents him to the crowd. He says, look, here is your king. And their, their reply is, We haven't got a king except Caesar. Do you know, it's often those moments of conflict and tension when the kind of deep truths of our hearts are revealed. We have no king but Caesar. Actually, that was totally against their faith. The Old Testament Bible had taught them that God was their true king. Listen, this is what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said in Uh, uh, chapter 26 Lord you established peace for us all that we have accomplished you have done for us Lord our God other lords beside you have ruled over us but your name alone do we honour and even when God gave them the kings that they wanted kings like Saul and David and Solomon they were only seen to kind of exercise their kingship in the name of the Lord. But you see, their rejection of Jesus as king shows their rejection of God. 
Because John points out in his opening chapter, the Word, it's Jesus, the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then he says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. See, this is what is at the heart of the human problem. We've rejected God. We've made someone or something king in his place. See, it's not so much that, that, that the human problem isn't so much that we make wrong decisions or we do wrong actions, but actually there's something distorted in our hearts. Our hearts want to worship anything other than God. See, in coming to earth, Jesus was revealing God to us, the creator of all things. He holds everything together. He gives us life. He comes to the brokenhearted. He says he's the true bread of life that will satisfy. He says he's the one that if you're thirsty, you can come to him and drink. But do you know what? Easter in modern Britain is a good reflection of human beings' response to that news and that offer. Thanks, but no thanks. Do you know, I think I'll desire these things instead. I think I'll give my life to these things instead. I think I will put these things in your place, God, instead. So you might think, well, maybe that's not so bad. Surely God's big enough and bold enough to be able to cope with that. But do you know what? If he is holy, if he is perfect, if he is pure, if he is loving in the way that we've been singing about this morning and we've heard, do you know what? Our replacement of him with something else is as one, what one Bible teacher calls it, cosmic treason. Listen, it sounds harsh, but what's at stake? God's glory. It's God's glory that's at stake. See, it's when we don't behold and see how glorious God is, that's when we don't see how serious our rejection of him really is. But the message of the cross is that though our rejection of God means that we deserve punishment and death, Jesus substitutes in our place. Amen. See, John wants to highlight to us what the time of year is. It's the feast of the Passover for the Jews, where they remember where God rescued them from judgment when they were slaves in Egypt. And if you know the story, they sacrificed, each family, each household sacrificed a lamb and put blood on the door of their household so that they would be protected from God's judgment. So as God came and judged the earth, judged Egypt, judged that place, they would know protection because of the smearing of the blood, because the lamb had died for them, died in their place. This is what the famous Bible teacher John Stott says. Substitution is at the heart of the Christian message. 
He says this, The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. And there is another helpful way that we see this um, idea of substitution in this passage. It's the experience of Barabbas. We read about Barabbas. See, at the Passover again, it was customary for Pilate to release one of the, uh, a Jewish prisoner as a kind of show of mercy, a kind of show of kindness, a kind of show of, look, I'm respecting this holy uh, time of year for you. He would release one of their prisoners. And for Pilate, this is almost like an appeal to common sense. He's saying, look, who do you want releasing and who do you think deserves crucifixion? Barabbas, this guilty man who has taken part in a rebellious uprising. Other gospel writers say he was a murderer. Or Jesus, this innocent man that Pilate could see had done nothing wrong. And do you know what? The crowd made their choice. And it revealed so much. And the real irony is, as as Sarush told us last week, that Barabbas means son of the father. That's what it means. Bar, Abba, Barabbas, son of the father. Actually, Matthew, in his gospel, he writes that his name is actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father. But the crowd choose to reject Jesus, the true son of the father, for this Jesus, son of the father. Put yourself in the shoes of Barabbas. He was guilty and he knew it. And he knew the types of people that deserved this awful death of crucifixion. You know, just imagine his confusion as he stood next to Jesus, who is obviously not one of them. And just think he woke and began that day, convicted murderer, prisoner, just waiting for his death, deserved execution. And he ended that day a free man, totally and utterly free. Who knows what happened to Barabbas? Who knows if he turned his life around? We don't know. We're not told. But do you know what? It's a powerful picture of what is true for all of us. That's the message of the cross. An innocent man gets punished and put to death and guilty people go free. That's the wonderful news of salvation. Listen, you might be feeling, do you know what? But Simon, you don't know. I have done some really bad things in life. 
you don't know what I've done. If you could see the things I've done, I'm not sure you would be saying the same. Perhaps you think, well, perhaps I'm just hoping that because I've done all these bad things, I can weigh them out with some good things with the, next, the, the future of my life. And hopefully, God will accept me once I've done as much good to cancel out the bad. But you know what? That's not the message of Jesus. It's not the message of Easter. Jesus, in his love, substitutes for your punishment and for my punishment. In his love. We've heard a lot about love this morning through what people have come and shared, through the songs we've sung. God's love extends. See, God's love doesn't just... If God's love just extended to the lovable, we would be in a sorry state. But it didn't. It extended to us who had rejected God, who were enemies of God. But his love came to you and I. And in love, Jesus substituted in our place. Perhaps you've been a Christian a long time. Perhaps you've been in church a long time. Listen, he substituted for you because he loved you. Finally, the king, the son, who is victorious. See, the cross looks like a defeat. It looks like a defeat and... John records some of the things that Jesus says from the cross. He says, I'm thirsty. And it says it was to fulfill scripture. You see, Jesus, the one who shouted, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now from the cross is experiencing the thirst of what it's like to experience crucifixion. He cried out, I'm thirsty. He's dehydrating. He also sees his mother at the side of the cross. And he ensures that she's going to be cared for. He sees his, the disciple that he loved and he sees his mother and he says, Woman, here is your son and here is your mother. See, even in his moments of death, he cared for individuals. And you know what? For years, I've just looked at that and thought, it just looks like, it just looks like one of the disciples taking in a dear old lady, and isn't that lovely and sweet? And was probably a bit of a bind for him, but that just shows what the Christian life's meant to be. But do you know what? As I've studied this, I've seen something different. Because how old would you say Think about it, if you can kind of work this out. How old do you think probably Mary was? Have you ever thought about that? At this moment? Yep, mid-40s, late-40s. It's not very old, is it? It's not that old. She's not some weak old woman who just needs somewhere to live. It's not old at all. It wouldn't have been old in their time, necessarily. Do you know what? I think this speaks to something else. That in the new family of God that Jesus is establishing, 
It's about men and women working together as a family of God. It's about everyone being included. Wherever you're from, you are included. This is about family together. This is about widows who have a place in the family of God because we're on mission together. And God and Jesus, I think Jesus is pointing to something marvellous. This is what the family of God is going to look like. It's sons and daughters, men and women, mothers and fathers working together, advancing my kingdom because we're on a mission. And then probably the most famous thing he says in the final moments before his death. He says, it is finished. You know, Karl Marx, the uh, famous communist philosopher, when asked if he had any last words when he was almost at death's door, in anger he said, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Now, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but I certainly know that Jesus had said enough. I know that Jesus had done enough. And I know that his last words were a reflection of the fact that he had done enough too. So he didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. And do you know what? It is finished is just one word in the Greek. One word. I'm not very good at Greek, but it's tetelestai. I'm sure someone will correct me. It's tetelestai. And sometimes you would find it, you'd find that word written on um, order, order books or on receipts in the ancient world. It would kind of be written to say, paid up, or uh, this order has been fulfilled completely. Because in his life and in his death, Jesus had fulfilled his mission. He was saying, I've successfully completed the work the Father has called me to do. I've done it all. Listen, friends, he's achieved rescue for you and me. This is what Charles Spurgeon says on that phrase, it is finished. An ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop, for that is all we can call one word, tetelestai. Yet it would need all the other words that were ever spoken or can ever be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. Finished. It was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There is nothing of anguish about it. There's no wailing in it. It's the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labour and is about to die. And before he utters his death prayer, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he shouts his life's last hymn in that one word, Tetelestai, it is finished. See, the true enemy wasn't really the Roman authorities, wasn't really the Jewish religious leaders, wasn't really you and me. Actually, it was the powers of evil that stood behind human arrogance, behind violence and rejection. And this is what Jesus is triumphing over on the cross. And do you know what? In his triumph, it is there for us all to see. Because three days later, risen, alive, death has not the final say. 
alive and risen three days later. See, it is finished. See, that's what I came to see as a young teenager that Easter time. See, I'd grown up in a church. I'd gone to church all those years. But in my head, the Christian message had kind of become, well, Jesus has done most of it for you. And the final bits is yours to do. Your actions and your behaviour, if you get it right, will get you over the line, will secure your salvation. I don't know, perhaps that had come through fear, perhaps that had come through unbelief, perhaps it had come through pride. I don't know, but that had become the why of crucifixion. It's the push to get you to do the rest. But do you know what? That Easter, as a young lad, I saw it. I saw it. I saw him. I saw the one who had given himself for me on the cross. The one who cried, it is finished. And I knew he'd done it all. I knew he'd done it all. Listen, as we finish, friend, is that you here today? Perhaps this is the first time you've heard that message that Jesus substituted in your place, that Jesus gave him his life for you. Friend, if that's you here today, do you know what? You can start a new life with Jesus today by coming to him and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry for my rejection of you and I'm choosing to trust in your death for me on the cross, your substitution for my sin. And you can start a new life with Jesus. But I also think there's many of us here today, this morning, where we're just not sometimes always secure and confident that he's done it all. But do you know what we can be? We have our days where we kind of go, has he really? Perhaps I just need to do a little bit more today just to make sure, just to add to what Jesus has done for me. Perhaps he hasn't done it all for me. We can all have days like that. But listen, he wants us to be confident and secure that he has paid everything for you and I to be acceptable before God, to receive the righteousness of God, and to know we can come to him every day Say, Father, I know you love me. And I'm accepted in you because of what Jesus has done. He's paid it all for me. Listen, that, perhaps that's you here this morning. God wants you to know you are secure and can be confident that every sin, every failure, everything that you may have done or will do is covered by his blood. It's covered. You can be secure. Or maybe you just know that you're kind of going through some things at the moment and you just think, do you know what, I want to live differently. I want to get that thing sorted in my life. I want, to, I want to live differently. I know there's that habit that's not good. I know there's that anger problem. I want to get over it. And I, I, want, to, I want to push through it. I want to live into all that God has for me. Listen, if that's you this morning, get the order right. It's not, I'll get those things sorted and then God will accept me. No, no, the cross tells you you're accepted fully. And now, by the power of his spirit, he'll help you and strengthen you to live how he wants you to live for him. Do you know, it's so important we get that order right. First accepted, 
first loved, then by the power of his spirit, he helps us to live for him. Listen, I want us to respond in song. I want us to take our collection. I want us to gaze our eyes again on Jesus, the one who gave his very life for you and for me. Why don't the band come up and I'm going to pray. And as we, as we take our... Um, as we, as we sing, we're going to take up our offering as well uh, as, a, as a response of worship. But first and foremost, we're going to come to the one who loves us and gave his life for us. Lord Jesus, we think you're wonderful. We know you are so good. We know you, you didn't shy away from the cross, but you gave yourself for us, for those that were unlovable. But in your love, your love extended to us. And thank you for an event that happened 2,000 years ago, thousands of miles away, but changes our lives and changes lives across Teesside. It's changing lives across the world. And Lord, you want to change lives even here this morning. And so I pray if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't received you, Lord, draw them to you. Show them how wonderful you are, how much you love them and gave your life for them. Lord Jesus, help us to live by the power of your Spirit, but first know that we're accepted and loved in you. And it's from a place of being righteous in you that you call us to live differently and live for you. Thank you, Jesus. We want to go out being confident and secure.